Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Afternoon, folks. This is Dave Harvey here for the Am I Called podcast, and we're tucked away at the Tallahassee Recording Studio somewhere in the middle of Tallahassee. Um, thanks for joining us today. My, my first exposure to Don Whitney came in the form of a book. The book was titled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and it was a book that what was so compelling that we we devoured it as a pastoral team, and then we urged everyone in the church that I pastored to, to read it. Don is the professor of biblical spirituality at Southern Seminary. That's, in, of course, in Louisville. And he's also the founder and president of the Center for Biblical Spirituality, and he served different pastorates for over 20 years. Don, it's, it's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Now, Don, you're probably the first person I've ever interviewed who had, as a hobby, restoring and using old fountain pens. Where where did that come from? Oh, man. Well, back in high school, I remember in the 10th grade, Papermate came out with the first fiber-tipped pen, the Flare. And I had all 10 colors of those. I just was engrossed with those for some reason. And then when I started college, it became my habit, for whatever reason, to get a Schaefer school pen. It's called a fountain pen with a cartridge, $3 blister pack kind of deal. And I made a habit of doing that every semester all the way through seminary and uh, loved writing with those. And then after Kathy and I married, uh, she bought me a very nice uh, Parker fountain pen that I just use like crazy. And when my dad died in 85, his boss had given him a um, rollerball and fountain pen set, very nice uh, uh, Parker set. And so I took that. And so now I had a black pen and one that used blue ink. So two different pens, two different colors. And it just kind of uh, went from there. Once I started traveling a lot, well, I moved to Kansas City to teach at a seminary there. They had a very nice pen shop there. First time I'd ever been around one of those. Then when I would travel on Saturday afternoons a lot, I would go to flea markets and antique malls and started getting vintage pens and then got tired of paying to have them restored. So I learned a little bit on my own how to do that. And I just enjoy uh, using pens. I, I won't bore you with getting in the whole story, but using them in ministry and so forth. And that's how really that accelerated. Well, that's one of the more unique hobbies that I've, I've come across, but I'm glad it refreshes you. It does. And like I said, I, I use them in ministry and, um, uh, so it, I don't have a hobby of like collecting to have a collection. I, I, I use them and, and uh, use them for ministry purposes. Now, Don, you were at law school in Arkansas and you were studying to be a lawyer when you felt called by God to go into ministry. Why, why don't you just tell us that story? What, what was happening back then? Where were you? And uh, what did that experience of, of calling look like for you? Yeah, well, unfortunately, kind of like the fountain pen story, there's a little bit of backstory to, to that. So uh, I was in college, and I was playing baseball. And when I finally realized that I wasn't going to lead off and play center field for the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, I started thinking, okay, what's what's the next best thing? And so uh, sports casting was what I thought the next option would be. I had grown up in the radio station, small town radio station my dad had managed since I was a little boy. I'd gone with him on Friday nights to help him do high school football. And Did you grow up in North- Arkansas? I did, a little town in northeast Arkansas, Osceola. 
And so uh, I, one of the reasons I chose to go to college where I did, though I had several baseball offers, I went an hour away from home so I could come home on uh, Friday nights uh, to do high school uh, sports for my dad, football and basketball. Well, when, as I said, when I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, I decided to go to, uh, to, to go into sportscasting. But I had read the biography of a then very popular sportscaster named Howard Cosell. And Cosell said that the best training he had for his sportscasting career, believe it or not, was his legal background. Cosell left a $30,000 a year job during the Depression as a lawyer, and that was a huge amount of money in the Depression, to become a $500 a month sportscaster. Well, Dave, I'd seen a lot of guys get stuck in small town radio. And so in my 21-year-old mind, I was thinking, hey, I'll get a law degree like Cosell, and I'll go to a big station and say, I'll be your attorney and your sportscaster. So I thought that a law degree would give me more buying power on a resume and help me, uh, you know, start at bigger stations. Now, were you converted at this time? Yes, I was converted, I think, genuinely so when I was nine. Okay. Well, while I'm playing baseball at Arkansas State, I was involved with a fellowship of Christian athletes. And I would go out with the quarterback of the football team and captain of the basketball team to give testimonies in youth groups and local churches and FCA events and so forth. And people would say to me, are you sure you're not supposed to be a preacher? Well, I'd known a lot of guys who had gone into the ministry because other people said they should. And they were miserable, of course, because they were called by men and not by God. So since I had never considered ministry anyway, though I had been, I'd grown up in a local church, my dad was the leading layman in our church all my life. And so I was often at church the only person my age from childhood all the way up through teen years. So I, I was very, you know, extremely involved in my local church, but it never once crossed my mind to go into ministry. So when people would say to me, are you sure you're not supposed to be in the ministry? My first thought was, believe it or not, aha, this is Satan trying to deceive me. Mm. And uh, I, I'm, I know what he's doing. I know he's trying to get me to go into the ministry when that's not what God wants me to do. So I don't know what I'm going to end up doing, but whatever it is, it's not going to be the ministry. Because the desire to do the, the broadcasting was so deep and that's powerful. Right. That's right. And because I thought I was, you know, Satan was trying to trick me. So I go to law school, as I just described. Well, I hated every minute of it. Uh, I was never more miserable in my life, but I was involved with the FCA over at the University of Arkansas, where I was going to law school. And I began to hear some of the same kind of comments I'd heard previously, but now with different ears. I was miserable with the path I'd chosen for my life. And so uh, as a result of, of these combination of things, I surrendered to ministry at the, uh, around Easter time, my first year of law school. And by that fall, I tell people I went to grace school. I went to seminary, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the end of law school and a sportscasting career and, and never looked back. Now, when you say surrender to ministry, Don, does that mean that there was a, a growing internal sense of call, or you just felt like uh, it was inevitable, and so you decided to go in that direction? You know, what, what does that really mean to surrender to ministry? Yeah, that, that's a very good question and almost sometimes gives people the implication or the, the impression that it's a, a negative thing. It was this growing sense that that was what God was calling me to do, but I was struggling. I don't know if you say struggling with it or struggling against it. Um, 
because as I said, I wanted to go into sports casting. I'd never thought of myself in ministry. So the, I guess the whole idea had to grow in me uh, a bit. I know with some people, it's it's a very sudden thing. I've heard a lot of people say from the moment they were converted, they knew God was calling them to ministry. But for me, it was far more of a of gradual awareness. And uh, my dad gave me the classic uh, advice, uh, which was very wise. He said, if you can do anything else and be happy, do it. And so I wrestled with the idea, can I be happy doing sports casting? And a part of me said, I think I, I could to some degree, but I finally realized, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, that I could not be happy doing anything if I weren't in ministry. And so uh, when my, my soul accepted that, embraced that, believed that to be true, and, and moved in that direction, uh, decisively, that's what I refer to as surrendering to the call to ministry. And so did you take your place in the church as another ex-athlete pastor, or did it head in another direction? Well, you mean immediately in the local church I was a part of while at law school? Uh, well, so I, so I assume you got out of law school. Yeah, well, this was Easter, so I finished out the semester, um, and I... I made public to the to the pastor and to the church my sense of call and and this church was a, a terrific church. It's right on the edge of the University of Arkansas campus, and uh, the pastor uh, had been there since 1964. Been chaplain of the Razorbacks since then, and this is 1975. And I was the 75th guy uh, in those 11 years who had surrendered to ministry mm. at that time. So wow. uh, I was licensed to preach then by that church. Continued on there and uh, then came home for the summer, went to uh, seminary in the fall. But I should add, also part of the Lord's purpose in bringing me to Fayetteville for that nine months was uh, the the first weekend of school, I met uh, my future wife, Kathy, at a church picnic. And so uh, my church involvement, uh, especially after around Easter time, uh, you know, involved Kathy as well. And so we were engaged that summer and into my first semester at law school, uh, at seminary, we got married. So now you're the professor of biblical spirituality at Southern. So, you know, why don't you talk about that a little bit, Don? In fact, let's just start with a basic question. What, what is biblical spirituality? Yeah, well, great question. We get that a lot. When I first came to Southern 10 years ago, I had already been professor of spiritual formation, uh, as it was referred to, at a sister seminary, Midwestern. And it, it was and still is the only full-time position like that in something called spirituality in, in the SBC and, and certainly in our six seminaries. When I came to um, a Southern, Dr. Moeller uh, didn't want to go with that title, spiritual formation. So uh, we tossed around several possibilities, and I suggested biblical spirituality. And I said, well, uh, it people still may not know what it is, but whatever it is, they realize we intend to be biblical. So uh, that's a good thing. So biblical spirituality, which I, I, I describe as the pursuit of God and the things of God uh, through by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, according to God's self-revelation, uh, the Bible. Now, that's a very f- focused and you know, somewhat nuanced aspect of the Christian life. How, how did that concentration for you in that area become such a, a prominent feature of your life and of your ministry? Well, the, the short answer is because of my first book, which I wrote while still a pastor, uh, and my best-known book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, uh, that established my 
uh, credentials, if you will, in the area of, of spirituality, of spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. So A wonderful I, book. Well, thank you. When I was first approached to come to Midwestern to teach, they wanted me to teach preaching because uh, my, my first doctorate was done in the area of the, the development and use of application in preaching. But I said, you know what? I, I really don't want to sit and listen to a lot of bad sermons all day. Um, and then as one of my colleagues here says, then your job is to tell somebody their baby's ugly. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I suggested, well, look, you know, I mean, what what little notoriety I have is based on this book. What about a position in spiritual formation? And it, it was a new thought because there was and still is no full-time position like that in any of our seminaries. So any, eventually that came around. And, and then, as I said, I was brought to Southern where we, we called it biblical spirituality. But uh, I, I can go into the story of how this developed really all the way back to my childhood, if, if that's the direction you're wanting to go. Well, talk a little bit about you know, your childhood and how this developed. I, I'd love to hear that. Okay, well, we'll interrupt if you need to at, at any point. Um, it, it goes back to, uh, one, my dad was a daily Bible reader. And as I've already mentioned, my dad was the leading layman in our church. And, and so my dad would read the Bible at home every night. He had a Bible on the corner of his desk at the, uh, at the radio station, and he read it there first thing every morning. So, number one, he was that, that great example to me in that. Second, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and we had in, in those days, it was very common to have what was called the old eight-point record system. And in Sunday school, everybody was given these little offering envelopes. And on the bottom of these offering envelopes were these little check boxes. And uh, uh, if you were uh, if you were there, that was like worth, let's say, you know, fifteen percent. If you brought an offering, that was like worth ten percent. If you were going to stay for the worship service, that was like fifteen percent. You know, if you read your Bible every day, that was like fifteen percent. All this totaled up to a hundred percent. You know, and, and and the goal was. Uh, for every person to be 100%, for your Sunday school class to be 100%. Well, so I remember every Sunday, my Sunday school teachers, and I'm thinking of the two that I had most of the years there. I never thought of them as particularly godly men. I mean, I respected them. They were deacons in our church, but but I, I didn't think of them as especially holy men, so to speak. But every Sunday they would ask, all right, how many of you boys are staying for worship? I'd raise my hand, yes, sir. I mean, you boys read your Bible every day. Yes, sir. So, I mean, that's just what we did. Mm -hmm. We were expected to do that. And so, yeah, that's real easy to become legalistic. That's real easy to become just, you know, mere outward things. But, you know, at the same time, there was this expectation in a culture. What we all do here from the youngest to the oldest is we expect people to read their Bibles every day. Well, we had something, and here's a phrase, Dave, you'll understand, but I look at my students today and say this, and their eyes glaze over. When we, they gave us a Sunday school quarterly, uh, which for your listeners is, is every three months in Sunday school, you got a, some literature that had the, the lessons uh, for those three months. In the back of our Sunday school quarterly each time was the daily Bible readings for that quarter. And so I can still recall checking those boxes and being creative in the ways I did it. For example, I might put an X in the first box, a dot in the second box, completely color in the third box, color in the lower half of the fourth box, color in the upper half of the fifth box. And I would try to come up with 90 different ways that quarter of coloring in those boxes. But you know what? I, I, I'm told I started reading pretty early, like when I was four. 
And Dave, I literally do not remember not reading the Bible every day. Hmm. I, have, I have no memory of a life without reading the Bible every single day. It was modeled in our home. It was modeled in our church. It was expected of us. So it was part of your spiritual formation. I mean, it's, it's, it was kind of in your family DNA yeah. and, and what you saw modeled before you and what you imbibed as a young child. Yeah, but long before I was converted, you know, so uh, as a child in my home, in our church. So um, then I was genuinely converted, I believe, when I was nine, and, and the Lord kept me pretty close to himself, and I, and I continued to read my Bible every day. So I go to college, and I, first semester there, I went to a Christian bookstore for the first time in my life. And I, because I'd grown up in a small town, what few Christian bookstores there were back, you know, in, in the early 70s were only in larger towns generally. And so I went to a Christian bookstore, and the very first Christian book I ever bought was on prayer. And, and I read that. And then I went to a conference at our church when I was in law school on prayer, got a book there and read it. And so then I go to seminary. What were those formative books, Don? Well, this, uh, the second one was by Tom Elliff, uh, recently re retired as president of the International Mission Board at the Southern Baptist Convention. And I actually forget the title of it. Prayer is in the title of it. But I remember him giving that material before it was published as a conference in, a in the church where I was in law school. And then the first Christian book I ever read, and I, I really don't remember that much about it, is called the, the Kneeling Christian. And it's been around forever. I think it's an anonymous author. It's a small book. Hmm. But so I, I, I was drawn to these practical things about Christian life. And so I'll move to a close here. But so I go to seminary, and there was a required class, as all seminaries have, in spirituality. And we had to read books there. And, and I, you know, I really enjoyed that class. And so then my very first sermon series as a, as a pastor was uh, basically, today I'd call it the spiritual disciplines. Mm. And I remember my last semester in seminary, standing in the line to check out in the bookstore and seeing in the new arrivals, a book with a maroon cover with an odd name called Celebration of Discipline. Mm. And I picked that up and for the first time ever, I, I saw a number of things that I had been hearing about all my life, but I'd never seen them grouped together like that and never had heard the term spiritual disciplines to speak of them collectively. Well, that, that book helped me do that and helped me in a lot of other ways. And uh, even though I'd have some differences uh, with it today on a number of bases, nevertheless, it, was, it, it taught me a great deal. So then uh, uh, mid-1980s, I'm doing a, a D-Men at Trinity Evangelical School and the best course I ever had in my life was on the spiritual and intellectual development of the pastor. One of the projects I had for that, uh, it was a series of sermons, topical sermons that I, that, you know, I, I developed that um, turned out to be the skeletal outlines of spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Hmm. And the point of all of that is I've just from my childhood been drawn to the, the practical outworkings of the Christian life, and especially those things I see now in retrospect are called spiritual disciplines. Uh, the navigators had an influence on me in terms of uh, uh, scripture memory. First year I was out of seminary, I read the biography of Dawson Trotman, who was you know, very, uh, a very disciplined man. That had an impact on me. And so um, that's sort of a survey of 
how I got there. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. So, so for any seminary students that are listening, um, don't despise those assignments because they can. Some of them can end up being pretty formative. I mean, as Don is talking here, you're, we're learning that uh, the outline of his his book, which has helped so many people, came from a, an assignment that he did in seminary. Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't be sitting here with this interview without that book. I wouldn't be teaching at Southern without that book. And, you know, it wasn't even the major assignment. It was just one of several. We had to develop a, a sermon series. And uh, I forget what the general outlines of it were, but I decided to do one on spiritual disciplines. And, you know, lo and behold, through that assignment, the most uh, uh, thing I, I'm, I'm, I'm best known for, I guess. Don, talk to the guy who's listening, um, who feels called to ministry, um, and, and, and make a case for why it's important for somebody in that role or someone who's aimed at ministry, or I mean, even someone in ministry to develop a rich spiritual life. Yeah. Well, if, if first of all, if they do not have a clear sense of call, uh, the day will come and it won't be too long when all they'll have to lean on is that sense of call. Uh, there'll be no encouragement from people. There will be no evident fruit. There'll be some Monday morning well, they all they will remember from Sunday is the blank looks on people as they uh, heard the sermon and the criticisms they got after the service, and things are not going well. And they'll think, "Why am I doing this? Why am I putting my family through this? I'll just quit." And they better have a sense like Jeremiah, who said, "Lord, this isn't what I signed up for, but I can't quit. There's a fire in my bones." And I want to quit, but I can't quit. I know I wouldn't be happy doing anything else. I would be miserable if I weren't in ministry. Every minister will come to that point, and uh, perhaps probably more than once. And so that clear sense that I'm doing this because God wants me to is, is so crucial. But then the spiritual life, oh my goodness, so many reasons for this. I mean, this is how you keep the elephants off your air hose. Uh, this is how you, you maintain your walk with God. This is, this is how that a minister keeps freshly in love with Christ and the Word of God and keeps from becoming a professional. Um, my last week's lectures to my students are from 1 Timothy 4, 16, pay attention to your life and doctrine. Persevere in these things. So uh, apart from both spirit and truth, heart and head, light and heat, um, there are just way too many things that will cause a sinkhole to to begin growing, and eventually man will collapse. And, uh, you know, those statistics, you know, that a very tiny fraction of those who begin ministry at seminary will actually reach retirement age uh, still in the ministry. And Let me, uh, let me just interrupt you, Don, and, and just yeah. make this practical for a second. You know, when I sit down and, and have my devotions— um, my phone is always close by, and sometimes I pick it up in ways that are entirely distracting. And, you know, I have a feeling I'm not alone in that kind of practice. It, it seems to embody a, a larger problem where technology swipes our time or distracts our attention from, you know, those things that should be prior, 
priorities. And I, I imagine you deal with this all the time. So, so how would you, you know, we're talking about spiritual disciplines, the centrality, importance, uh, how much life they bring to us in our relationship with Christ. But how would you counsel someone like me who struggles with those kind of distractions that technology can bring? For starters, we recognize God made us alive in this time. Um, in, in Ecclesiastes, it says, do not say, why were the former days better than these? Uh, it, it's wrong to talk about the good old days in a nostalgic sense that, uh, you know, that, well, people were holier then or found it easier to be holier then. Culture always helps us in some of the disciplines and hurts us in others. For example, my grandparents, when they married in March of 1919, began life as, as dirt farmers. Uh, you know, the only news or music they ever heard, they heard live. And to get it, they had to hitch up a team and take a bumpy wagon ride into town, which they would do on Saturdays and Sundays. And the president could be shot on Monday. They wouldn't hear about it till they came to church to town on, on Saturday or to church on Sunday. Hmm. And if they wanted to read something, I mean, even to go to the library and borrow a book was a big deal because they had no radio, they had no television. And so... Culture hurt them in terms of, of godly learning. It helped them in terms of meditation on Scripture and solitude. If my grandfather wanted to, had read his Bible, wanted to meditate on Scripture, he could take uh, his, his lunch and go out to the fields, and he could work all day long. And the only sounds he heard all day were the sounds of God's creation or the sounds that, that he made working the fields. Well, two generations later, it's completely reversed. Uh, it, if you want to learn the things of God today, my goodness, in this little electronic brick that each of us have next to us here, I, I have more resident on my iPhone than, than Jonathan Edwards had in his whole library. And through this little device, I have an infinite universe of information. So if you want to learn the things of God today, you can listen to Dave Harvey's podcast. And, you know, wow, what a blessing that is. Culture really helps us in terms of learning, in terms of solitude, like you described, Dave, getting alone with God without distraction. It, culture hurts us in that regard. So we all have the trade-offs in our generation. And so that, that's, we want to acknowledge, look, God made us alive now. And so we're to be godly, biblical, Christ-centered Christians in this technologically driven culture. So we have unique challenges. Well, I, th I think it's pretty obvious. You, you turn it off for that time. Or you you put it in another place, and uh, you you just you know give your attention to to God alone. Uh, we can use technology to help us in terms of spirituality, having the Bible on our phones, and things like that. Or it can be our enemy. These these sweeping technological and cultural changes that you're describing, Don, um, have they changed how you what you encourage people to accent? in their spiritual disciplines? Was it different 20 years ago than it is today in terms of how you counsel and encourage people? No, I don't think so. Um, because the, the, the root disciplines are always the intake of the Word of God and prayer. And 20 years ago, I might use you know, a, a prayer notebook. Today, I might use an app for the same purpose. But but uh, 20 years ago, I would use uh, a hardbound print Bible to uh, walk and uh, pray 
through a passage of scripture. Today, I open up the app on my iPhone and walk and pray through a passage of scripture. So the same biblical practices are there, but the tools are different. Any any major changes in your thinking or practice since you wrote the Spiritual Disciplines book? Well, originally I wrote it in 1991. And uh, then in 2014, I came out with a um, revised and updated edition. About 10,000 additional words, most of them, uh, Dave, in the area of meditation. Uh, the first edition of the book, I have six methods of meditation on Scripture, and the new one, are uh, there are 17 different methods hmm. of meditation on Scripture. And uh, the, uh, about four years ago, I did a year-long series in Table Talk magazine on the gospel and the spiritual disciplines, and I've incorporated that into the new edition of the book. So I, I think I think far more in terms of the relationship of the disciplines to the gospel uh, than I did. And uh, I, I have, uh, I removed uh, some quotations from uh, some people that, whose things, I, I, books I really don't want to lead people to read anymore, though the quotations were by and large true and helpful. I just didn't want to, uh, I, I've learned a few things in the last uh, 20 plus years of um in this regard, and and some of the people I quoted have have gone in different directions in the last twenty plus years. So, um, those would be the major changes as they and, relate. To and did the the expanded categories for meditation was that in response to some of the very things you're tracking on the effects of technology and and your desire to encourage people towards meditation more? Uh, I did incorporate a little bit. Uh, one of the difficulties um, was, I, I, you know, in updating the book, I mean, I took out terms like cassette tape, mm -hmm. yeah. but what do you put in its place? I mean, if I put MP3, well, 23 years from now, holograms could be as common as MP3s are today. Uh, I didn't mention Facebook or Twitter, for example. Uh, 10 years from now, Facebook could be where my, my space is now, you know? Yeah. So... Uh, I tried to deal with technology, but more in generic terms. I would speak of recordings, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah, I tried to incorporate technology and contemporary tools and trends without making them time-based, if, if you understand what I mean. Don, one of the curious developments among Reformed evangelicals is that there seems to be a, a rise of of a kind of contemplative Christianity, which which seems to draw Christians to everything from Catholic mystics to you know to some unusual practices and and some very good practices as well. But I wanted to get you interacting over that a little bit. What what encourages you about this development, and what are the dangers you see? Well, Dave, you're asking me questions that I could talk about all day, and I know you don't want me to do that. So, um, well, I, I think the encouraging things would be a, a rise of interest in spirituality, people taking these things seriously. But one of the great concerns I have, especially in evangelical spirituality, is it's very hard to pick up a book written by an evangelical on spirituality mm -hmm. that doesn't lean heavily on for models and teachers of spirituality, people who hold to a very different gospel right. than we do, and often a very different view of the scripture. 
Uh, My contention is if you don't get justification right, you're not likely to get sanctification right. And so I I am loath to to put in the hands of people books that look favorably upon writers. I I would not want to send people to for the gospel. Um, I you know just there's a view that you know someone who's really spiritual, however they understand that, surely can't be that wrong theologically. And and yet there you know there there are these these books that are have been published and and are being published that have have veins of thinking and and practice that seems to be attracting solidly reformed thinking people that's right and um you you can be a very pious person and yet be uh way off base theologically and a and a thoughtful doctrinally minded person that can read through some of that and and parse the good from the bad. Yeah, well, I uh, I was telling a couple of my PhD students yesterday about certain writers, and I say, you know, I, ha- I have you guys read this, but I don't have my MDiv students read this, and I certainly don't recommend these writers in the local church. I can recommend these books to people only if I can say, now watch out for this, and watch out for that, and I'm confident they know what I mean, and they're able to pick out the bones. But unless I'm confident that people can do that, I just don't want to recommend books, however popular they may be or helpful they might be in general, because, you know, they can be so wrong in the gospel. And if a person is wrong about being right with God, it doesn't really matter in the end what else they're right about. And, and part of what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a leader, is to is to exercise that kind of doctrinal discernment so that you're recommending the right resources to the right group of people in keeping with your estimation of their discernment. Exactly. And furthermore, I think there's so many good books we could recommend in their place. It's not like we're impoverishing people by not giving them any resources at all. People seem to neglect the ones I'll call our guys. And by that, I mean people who have the same view of the gospel, who have the same view of the Bible. I mean, you you want to read a a theologically driven, a passionate spirituality? Well, read Jonathan Edwards uh, on spirituality, especially something like his personal narrative. Uh, I have my students read the biography of George Mueller, a man solid as a rock on on the gospel. We might have some differentiation with him on ecclesiology, but I think that would be secondary. But here's this incredible man of prayer and faith, and I have every confidence recommending what he writes about prayer, whereas a lot of other writers on the subject, I would think, boy, I hope they don't pick up on on this or they don't pick up on that. Yeah, I, I agree. Don, I got time for one more question. Um, so let me let me move it back into the practical realm. Um, let's imagine that a pastor's listening and and he wants to focus on growth in just one spiritual discipline. Um, and uh, you don't know him, but there are general principles you're operating from. Which spiritual discipline would you recommend, and what would you encourage him to do? That's a very good question, and I'm going to have to say two. Uh, I I tell people who say, well, hey, we're going to be teaching your spiritual disciplines book, or we're going to be doing a series on the spiritual disciplines. 
I say, well, the two most important personal spiritual disciplines, and all along here, let's verbalize it. We've been talking about personal spiritual disciplines, and the congregational or interpersonal spiritual disciplines are just as important. Uh, we're not just talking about personal prayer. We also want to talk about prayer in the church. We don't just want to talk about the personal intake of Scripture, but also hearing the Scriptures read and taught at the church. But in terms of the personal spiritual disciplines, the two most important are the intake of the Word of God and prayer. And in that order, for it's more important for us to hear from God through His Word than for God to hear from us in prayer. But with, uh, so I tell people, look, if, you're, if your people aren't grounded in those two, forget fasting, forget journaling, forget anything else. Those are by far the most important, and all the others grow out of those. And, and I found there's an almost universal problem with, with both of them. With prayer, the almost universal problem is that people tend to say the same old things about the same old things, and that's boring. And when prayer is boring, they don't feel like praying. And if they don't feel like praying, it's hard to make themselves pray. And five to seven minutes feels like an eternity, and their mind wanders half the time, and they feel like second-rate Christians. Now, to pray about the same old things is normal. Our lives tend to consist one day to the next about the same old things. But saying the same old things about the same old things is deadening. A simple, permanent, biblical solution, if that's the pastor or the, the Christian's issue, is when you pray, pray through a passage of Scripture. Pray the Bible. And I'm, this is, I didn't get into all this for purposes of a commercial, but uh, this, uh, this next month, this summer, uh, in, here in 2015, I have a book coming out on praying the Bible, and I'm, mm. I'm so excited about that. Who's, pu- who's publishing that? That's Crossway. Good. And uh, I'm I'm very excited. They can, people can go to my website at biblicalspirituality.org, and they can you know find it there if, if, depending on when they listen to your podcast. Um, but I, it, simple, permanent biblical solution: open the Bible. I'd recommend particularly a Psalm, and just turn into prayer what they read there. It's simple. Anybody can do that. I could expand on that for two hours. I won't. But that's that's the simple, permanent, refreshing solution that I find in the area of prayer. With the intake of scripture, the almost universal problem is this, that even our most devoted daily Bible readers will say, you know, I read a chapter, I read three chapters, maybe it is every day, but as soon as I close my Bible, I don't remember a thing I've read. And again, they conclude, well, it must just be me. Somehow I'm a second-rate Christian. I never had a good memory, never had a high IQ, I never had a good education. Well, all those things may be true, but that's not why people don't remember what they read. Simple, permanent, biblical solution, meditation on Scripture. Most people read the Bible and don't meditate on Scripture. Now, if they only have 10 minutes, don't read for 10 minutes. Read for five minutes. Meditate for five minutes. But in meditation, people will absorb the Scripture, and, and that's why they they will remember. You know, when people read the Bible normally, they read, it takes them two seconds to read verse one, then two seconds to read verse two, and two seconds to read verse three. They can read a thousand verses every day, two seconds each. And what do you ever remember that you look at for two seconds? So the problem is not the person or their memory, it's, it's their method. So in, in general, I think the rule every day that I advocate is read big, meditate small. Read big, read a big section, like a chapter, three chapters. We need that overview. But then come back 
and meditate small. Pick mm. one verse, one phrase, and, and turn it over in one of the 17 different ways that, that I teach. But, but Dave, if, if, if within my power to change the devotional lives of every Christian in the world, it would be right here in terms of meditation on Scripture. Mm. It's not that people can't. We just don't. And I believe that would be the single most transformational thing that, that most pastors, Christians can do is not just read the Bible, meditate on the Bible. That's very helpful, Don. Read big and meditate small. I'm, I'm going to remember day. that. That's, that's really helpful. Don, what's the title of the book that's being released this summer? It's called Praying the Bible by Crossway. Praying the Bible by Crossway. Yeah, Crossway's the publisher. Praying the Bible is the title. Good. Well, I want to encourage our, our listeners to look that up and, and buy that as soon as it comes out. And Don, as expected, this has been a both a fascinating and a practical interview. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you're very welcome, Dave. It's an honor to be here. That's it for today, folks. This is Dave Harvey, and you've been listening to the Am I Called podcast. And just remember, for more information on leadership, on calling, on ministry, or to listen to more podcasts with folks like Randy Alcorn or Paul Tripp, Sam Storm, Scotty Smith. I mean, there's just a there's a number of podcasts that are there. Visit our website at amicalled.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.